Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is this is the reason I do the podcast. Um, it's funny. Amor Tolls was just asking, who's my guest today, was asking me how I split my time. And uh, before we started, we, we were talking about um, the different pulls on, on our time. And the reason that the podcast continues to uh, take some of my time is that it gives me the opportunity to meet and like talk to and learn from people whose work uh, blows me away. And, and you know, often on this podcast, I have I'm talking to friends of mine, people whose music I've listened to my whole life. But I mean, a- Amor, your books, A Gentleman in Moscow, I read first, even though it was your second novel, and uh, Rules of Ability, I read second, even though it was your first. I mean, these books were the buoy for me during the worst of the pandemic time. And uh, I, I told you this online, even we don't know one another, but we've communicated, you know, in the modern world, we know each other a little bit now uh, on social media. And I, I, I sort of talked about the fact that when I was reading A Gentleman in Moscow, I, I'm a very, very, very fast reader. And, uh, but I forced myself to read that book slowly. By page 50, I realized that this was my life raft. And this was uh, hearing your story told the way you told it in that book gave me a kind of uh, hope uh, during uh, the, this this time. And then, and then the hope I also had was that Rules of Civility wouldn't suck because that would have just <laughs> ruined the entire thing for me. Uh, and I loved it just as as much. And um, and I reached out to you to to say, can we can we please talk and to thank you and. Man, I have to say, I am. I know writers don't write for anybody but themselves in a certain way, but I have such deep gratitude for the care and the love uh, you put in these books. Uh, it, it's it's clear on every page how much it means to you to uh, to to have them work perfectly, and and it, the amount of effort it must take. And focus, and so I just want to start by saying thanks for that. I should I should sign off now. Yeah, sure. After we're done. that, that yeah, was, we're done. Uh, that was great. But thanks, Brian, for having me on the show, and thanks for those comments. And it's actually, you know, if you don't mind, it's it's kind of you've pointed to an interesting yep, starting point for me, which is uh, I I I've written since I was a kid. So I started writing in you know first grade, and I've written my whole life. Um, I wrote, wrote fiction in high school and graduate school and college. Um, and I'm 55 now, um, but uh, sort of when I work on a novel, the way I kind of think of it is I try to really write my first draft totally for myself, referring back to what you said a second ago. And, and yes. I, that means for me, uh, I want to follow my instincts, not, not only my instincts, but my whims and all my weaknesses, you know, if, if yes, my vanities, yes. my obsessions, my... You know, I'm willing to go you know, on and on and on in a section that, you know, uh, that would bore almost anybody else uh, in, in mankind. And, and but but I, I give it all of I really do it for myself. I just allow myself to pursue any avenue that seems interesting to me or uh, that satisfies some instinct in, in my creative efforts. And but when the first draft is done and I and I have accomplished this sort of maybe vain outcome, I, I sort of think of it as I want I want to edit for the reader. You know, it's when I kind of try to turn around the lens as it were. And, and for me, you know, the reader is not a consumer. 
you know, it's not a commercial concept. Yeah, who's your ideal? Yeah, who's the yeah, ideal? I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe it's, it's, and it can kind of vary and it doesn't have to be perfectly defined. I suppose to some degree, my ideal reader is, it's, it's my heroes to some degree. You know, it's William Faulkner or, uh, or Edith Wharton, um, or it's, it's uh, people who've had a, uh, you know, a mentor, you know, say from younger, in my younger life, someone like Peter Matheson or, but it, it's just more generally sort of a, a, this other reader who's going to, who ideally is intelligent and shrewd um, and, and interested, interesting, um, but who is committing maybe some money and certainly some time to read my work. And, and I feel that that deserves the sort of a covenant there that deserves a certain kind of attention on my part uh, before I hand over this, this self-propelled project and put it in their hands. And that means cleaning it up for them, you know, which uh, is going page by page and trying to eliminate uh, redundancies, cliches, boring parts, uh, you know, pure vanities, and, and try to shrink this sprawling self-generated work into something that, uh, that merits the attention of the reader and doesn't take advantage of the reader's generosity. Um, and so, so that's kind of the way I, I think of it, you know, it's kind of this two-sided process. So I, so as I say, I appreciate your description on the one hand, it is written for me, uh, initially, but I do try to edit for some version of you. And, uh, and I do do that on a page by page basis. Right. And, and, is that done? Well, it's, you know, I'm thinking of a bunch of things. I mean, I'm thinking of the great authors who, you know, Tolstoy who left that stuff in. Right. And, um, and the way in which you make the decision, I guess each time, you know, what's interesting to you might in fact be interesting to us. And you do, I think you do leave Arcana in there at times. Right. And, and, um, to really good, uh, it's a solid purpose, I, I I think it it, but I'm I'm also thinking of Hemingway, right? And and right. the with the iceberg, which I, I imagine uh, is something you've thought of as you're uh, writing too, which is don't allow all your knowledge to drive what's on the page. Allow all your knowledge to inform what's on the page. Right? Yeah, I, I was kind of I was about to sort of make a similar comment. I mean, we can sort of roughly say 1900. Just pick it as a as a demarcation point, and and sort of there's that style that is so terrific in the 19th century, whether it's Dickens or Tolstoy or, you know, late yes. in the 19th century, James, who tickles over into the tw- tri- trickles over in the 20th century. But but that 19th century sensibility or Melville, you know, where uh, the, the it is expansive, it is inclusive, it is at length, you know, uh, and, and those were great virtues of those writers. And then, of course, you have people like you know, Thackeray and Balzac who are doing it over many, many, many volumes. Um, yes. And, and, but then you sort of have this demarcation point, as I say, and you sort of move into the 20th century where the whole realm of art and commerce is getting leaner and faster. And, sure, and, yes. uh, you know, and our, the style of a, of a living room gets that way, you know, whether it's, you know, moving towards the mid-century modern style. But, uh, but so you kind of see it across art forms. And um, you suddenly have Edward Hopper and you have, you know, the great photographers and uh, these people who are, taking that content and distilling it down into, into a much more sort of refined, not, not refined in, in the high sense, but meaning, you know, di- really distillation of this bigger artistic approach. And, um, yes. and so, so yeah, I'm, I'm someone who has a foot in both centuries. 
very much so. And, and so I, I'm, I'm the 19th century novelists are my greatest heroes in many ways, but I, I am, I am a modernist at the same time. And so I'm kind of interested in how do you take that sensibility, uh, that approach to storytelling and run it through a, a filter of, of the 20th century so that it might have a feel of 1900 or 1920 or 1880, but yet still feels very contemporary to uh, the, the modern reader. Yeah, that's um, fascinating. I was thinking about, uh, as you were talking, suddenly, weirdly, The Naked and the Dead came into my head. And, and like that book, for me, doesn't quite work the way that I wished it did now, because in a way, maybe you love it. But for me, Hemingway was ready to move into the next world and moved us there, whereas Mailer, I think, at that time was still wrestling with the early, those earlier writers. And so while he might have used curse words and stuff, it still has, it's still sort of like overly packed, I think. Right. Yeah, that, and, that, and, that, and that can weigh a book down, you know, for sure. And by the way, he I don't think of him as someone who, who edited for his reader. He's a good example. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. He <laughs> no, didn't. Generally. I mean, right. his, his best books for me still live. You know, Why Are We in Vietnam, which is really a slim volume, still works for me. But but like Naked, and I, uh, you know, I'm a, he was a huge hero of mine. But 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 I think about Naked and the Dead, which had aspirations to be this this kind of thing, and it didn't. It it doesn't quite. I don't know if it'll. I don't know if in thirty years anyone will know what that book is, or in, in forty years. And, and Mailer would as soon punch you in the nose as apologize for that. You know, right? So, but yeah, <laughs> that's a personality. It it it's funny. So for you though, those I just want to stay with this because I've always had a really like your books for all of their allusions to those artists and figures and the, your allusions to Hopper in rules just killed me. I mean, I just loved them so much. This sort of references to things Hopper painted without saying that Hopper was painting them was really a great thing in that book. And sort of the whole way you talk about, you know, modern art, the beginnings of that kind of modern art. But, but you can go into like Thackeray's, you love Thackeray's books. Like you read Vanity Fair and that just speaks to you. Well, I, mean, I am more. He, I, I, you know, I listed him as an example. I am certainly my, my, my bigger. Because I can't read it. Because I can't. I'm just admitting I, I can't read it. Like, I don't it read. Just, I don't read that. I don't read that. I'm much okay, more of a, of a of a, I feel of better. a Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Dickens, you know, fine. kind of yes. guy. I feel much better now. No, when you said Thackeray, I wrote it down like, fuck, I got to get back into no, no, Thackeray no, no. now. Because yeah. I could. I mean, I, I remember um, making the decision as a reader at a certain point, like, I can't. I'm just not going to do it. So, Amor, you, you say you've been writing your whole life, and it's true, and I, I know that, but, but you took a lot of years where you worked in finance, and I think it's, and I've read all the interviews that I could find with you, so I, I, I've heard you speak to it, but there's one angle I haven't heard you talk about, which is as a result of your decision, and I love what you say and I'll, uh, about why when you looked at the guys who were bartenders or who worked in the industries, the different ways those were defeating to them. And I, I felt that. I know that's true. But I was thinking about like Ethan Kanan and Shabon and uh, Pam Houston and Tom Beller and like this generation you would have been a part of had you been at Yaddo and McDowell when you were in your early 20s. Yeah. And I wonder if, and, and instead you're kind of a man without a country. You're, you're a huge success, as, as, as successful as an author can be. But you did miss out on, and maybe, I, I'm curious if you were, you did miss out on being a part of 
this literary generation? Or do you not see it that way? When, you, when those guys were having that success and they're all around your age, how did it hit you then? And how does it feel now? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting observation. I, I, I do most immediately what I think of is that I constantly feel like I'm five books behind. Yes, you know, and I, what, yes. And I mean that partly as a competitive thing, but mostly for myself, meaning yes. I have five fully formed ideas and I cross my fingers that I will have enough time and energy to commit them to paper, you know, before I, I, I die or, or, you know, or fade off or, or whatever. But um, so, so there's that, you know, the, the decision or there's just the reality of my life that having written from the age of, you know, 13 to 25 to then stop for a decade um, was a very, you know, uh, artistically and to some degree emotionally expensive thing to do. You know? Yes. Um, and, and and I do, uh, you know, you know, I, and that, that that put me five books behind. Now I have, you know, there's other advantages to having made that decision. I don't really regret the decision per se, um, given where I've landed. Um, but you know, this I, I certainly at that age when I was younger and felt like, okay, I can do this. Um, it was hard not to, yeah, you know, look at Jonathan Franzen with envy right. or, you know, frustration or be like, oh, geez, what am I doing? Right. You know, so, um, uh, and I can do that, you know, or whatever the, the young artistic impulse is. Um, so, so, so I, and, and maybe part of that is because I wasn't really, you know, I think young artists, we all envy those moments in time where everybody's interacting with each other, you know, like the, uh, the, you know, the jazz scene in New York in the fifties where they all know each other, you know, yes. and, they're, and they're, they're feeding off each other and improving each other's game, you know, almost by the minute, um, you know, with Davis and Coltrane course, and you know, yeah. the whole crowd and, or, or the, you know, the beat poets or the Renaissance painters in Florence, you know, that, that, that is of course the greatest, as a young artist, you look back and, and that's what you really would love is to have landed in a moment in time where you've got this community of people you're working against and beside and because of and uh, and that that would propel your work. Um, I think that I, I just didn't know I wasn't in that circle. You know what I mean? So so as a young writer, even though I was in New York City, I wasn't socializing with other with a community of young writers. And I wasn't really drawn to doing that, I guess, at the time. Um, so, 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 I mean, that's a part of it too, right? Which is that if I happen to have found myself in this sort of, in a moment in time, in a place where there was sort of a foment of writers around, I, I, I would have been probably more inclined to dive in and take my chances. Um, but as is, I was kind of operating alone anyway, you know, and, uh, and maybe that made it easier to set aside my, my, my deepest ambition, you know, um, and, uh, and I paid a price for that. And, and as I say, and ending up five books behind. Right. I mean, what was your, because now we know you were right, right. I often talk on here about how um, you just don't know if it's a delusion or, or yeah. if you're really an artist, yeah. although you, here's these certain things, right. For some people who know the fact that you were in the Paris review in 89 and had five stories uh, published I mean, that's the kind of victory, the kind of win, the kind of affirmation that uh, most writers would use that to propel them into a life of writing because of what the Paris Review meant, because of 
the 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 from the Paris Review to the New Yorker is not that hard. I mean, it's impossible, but you know what I mean. It's not that hard, yeah. and uh, or it's not that impossible to see. I guess it's an impossible thing to get in the New Yorker. But once you're in the Paris Review, in a way that you were, uh, you can see it uh, uh, from one rooftop to the other, and and you can see. You say you weren't amongst those writers. But when Cavalier and Clay come, you know, first, when their first, the collections of short stories came out, Canaan's and Shabon's and Tamara's, you know, those, that that moment when those three books came out, I I mean, I was a kid and I didn't start writing until I was 30. And so I remember when those books came out um, feeling, you know, I'm two years younger than you, I think. So feeling like, oh, wow, this is all happening. Am I ever going to deal with this? Am I ever going to do this? And uh, what exactly was your thought process? You know, you come out of Yale as an English major, you get your master's at Stanford, you get published in a really important place. What were you scared of, man? <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know. If, uh, I don't know if I'd put it that way, but it, but it may be as simple as, and I've you know said this, <laughs> I've said this, it may be as simple as, um, I mean, it was a variety of things, but maybe one of the biggest was, you know, a, 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 a Freudian pleasing dad kind of thing. Sure. You know, my, my, my not wanting, um, uh, wanting to be able to earn my own keep um, in a way that was both was practical and visible um, and that satisfied my, my father's uh, anxiety, you know, uh, in the what most. Did he do for a, what did he do for a living? Well, he was a banker in Boston. Right. And um, he, and he loved when, Rules of Civility was, was published. It ended up being, you know, one of the most exciting things that had happened, you know, for him yes. in, in his life. I mean, I, you know, so I don't want to suggest that that anything other than that. He, he was my biggest fan. In but at the age of twenty four, five, he was much more affected by the fear that, as a practical person from grazed in the Midwest, that if I went into the arts, I would end up not only in a, unable to pay for myself, but probably disappointed. And, yes. uh, and, yes. and, you know, on a road to ruin of some kind, you know, and, and so he had the sort of emo, you know, emitted this very powerful, although often silent anxiety about, uh, about my artistic interests. It was not, you know, go be an artist. And even though he, many artists were his heroes, you know, but the idea that his, one of his children would pursue that route was, was not what he had bargained for. So, um, so part of it was that. You know, just sort of okay. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, satisfy, uh, check that box. I'm gonna I'm gonna pay my own way. Yes. You know, build my own reputation. Blah blah blah. And you know, in, in a professional capacity. And now I should say this too. And this is an important distinction. When I was, uh, it, it was that my career was very interesting, right? I mean, ah, but part of the thing yes. that we're not talking about is that. Uh, it's not like I was in the basement of an insurance company you know, checking somebody else's math and, you know, being miserable and going home and, you know, s s you know sludging home on the right. subway with, a, with, a, with an aspect of self-loathing. It wasn't that, right? The investment business is highly satisfying from an intellectual standpoint um, and from an interrelationship inter standpoint. You know, it's a very dynamic field filled with bright and dynamic people both in terms of the people who execute it and the people who are the customers, you know, so, uh, so, so that's a part of it became part of the problem. And, and as it were, uh, and I, I was, you know, 
we'll back this up a second, you know, to, to an observation you made. When I was young, and I saw, I really began, you, as a young artist, there's a moment where you say, you know what, this, I can do this, right? I, yep. First of all, this is what I love. I admire it in others. And then you kind of go through this transition where you start to experiment with it. And then you could say, you know, I, I can do this, right? And, and as you say, that might be a delusion. And you carry it as a delusion. You kind right. of know it's potentially a delusion. And it's very private. And, and I'm talking about in your teens, you know, yes. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, you know, India or whatever. And what ended up happening for me was that I was at Yale and I'd, I'd been writing for, you know, at that point, uh, almost, you know, a decade, let's say, you know, strangely, but, you know, from, from an immature, very immature level, but, you know, towards, you know, 20 years old and going into adulthood and, um, and had rattled ton. And uh, I submitted some stories to get into a seminar of a visiting writer who I mentioned a minute ago, Peter Matheson, a great yes. American writer. Yes. And I got accepted, which was, you know, a, a validation of some kind. And you would kind of submit stories and every week he'd say, okay, I want, you know, you three, I want you and you and you to, you know, read your story this week or to share your story. And, and then there would be a discussion or whatever. And there was one point early in the semester where I, I think I had three of my stories were chosen in the course of four weeks. And, and at the end of that class, the fourth class, he said, hey, listen, can you stop for a second? And so he kept me back. And he said, listen, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're here. I don't know what you, what you, why you're doing this. Um, but, you know, I think that you may be gifted at this. And I think you should take it very, very seriously. And I'm going to take it seriously that you're here. And I hope you take it seriously too. And, yes. um, and that's kind of the moment where you, you, know, you that external validation changes everything for you, right? All those sort of internal perceptions of, I think I can do this. And you read yes. someone, you're like, I'm, I could even do better than that guy, you know, or whoever it is. And suddenly there's this a person you respect and admire who, who uh, pulls you aside to say the, say it of themselves. On their, and, and that's a very, you know, that changed my life, I guess, right? That's a moment that changed my life in many ways. And uh, so I worked with Matheson at, at Yale. I, you know, I went to Stanford and wrote fiction there, but I continued to, uh, to work with Matheson. He's part of the reason, obviously, that I ended up in the Parish Review because uh, as a fan, he passed along my work. Right. Um, and so when I went into the investment field, he was furious. Yeah, I read you say that and, and that he was he was crushed. But what did it do to you? Well, I, that's I so that he, he, he was like a goat. I mean, when he was alive, he was still alive. Yes. But he right. was like he haunted me. You know, is that I was I kept telling myself, OK, I'm going to do this for a while. I'm going to make I'm going to establish a career. I'm going to pay my own bills. I'm going to, you know. Uh, clear, you know, create some clarity in the future. I'm going to also be able, you know, not alone in the house all day, which I wasn't really digging at the time. Yes. Um, as a young right. writer. Okay, fair. Yes, right. You know, and so, so you're out in the mix and you're dating and making friends and it's exciting. You know, we're building the business. That was a blast. So, you, 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 I mean, joining the New York City. No, and you were a successful person and you were making real money and all that stuff. Well, eventually, was, right. Eventually right. that shows up. And so that's a reason to stick around. But, but so, but I kind of, what I knew was, meanwhile, every time I would see Matheson, you know, he'd be like, he'd grit his teeth and, and he was really disappointed. And so the way I thought about it is that, is, is some people say, you know, oh, so, you know, you must have loved fiction so much. That's how you got back to it. You know, after this 10-year hiatus, while still on the job, you began writing fiction again, which is all true. You know, it's because of the love for fiction. Well, that's true. But in a way, the bigger truth was not the love of it, which was very big. It was the dread of failing to do it. 
Yes. And that's that's what really in my early 30s began to really hover over me. Well, the dread is what I wanted to ask you about, because this is what happened to me, man. It was like, you know, I was 29, 30 years old and I realized, oh, if I don't do this, something's going to die inside me. That's it. It does. And I was like, if it dies... Like any other death, it's going to turn toxic. And that toxicity would ooze out of me onto the people I loved. Like I had this full knowledge that if I didn't do it, I'd become the worst version of myself. Did I that s- ever occur to you or oh, no? Not only did it occur to me, I said that to my <laughs> wife the day I proposed. You know, I, I mean, I literally, I proposed to my wife. She said yes. And at dinner that night, I said, listen, you know, I am, I am not going to become an addict. You know, I'm not going to cheat on you. Um, I'm not going to go broke, you know, but if I don't, do, you know, you don't even know this, but I write fiction, by the way, you know, which I wasn't doing at the time. And I'm like, Wait, but it, you're, hold on. Stop. I'm sorry. Your fiance. Yeah. You asked someone to marry. This is really important. This is how far you buried this. Yeah. Thing. Your fiance didn't know that you were a fiction writer. Yeah, I don't think so. Not really. I mean, you know, maybe the Paris Review came up in some weird moment, but no, Amazing. it was because because you know because you're because of the thing we're talking about, right? You're you're yes. You're you're feeling you've 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 had this private ambition. It got vindicated by a single person, not by not by the world. And then you know you're you're not doing it. And then you like just to say, well, I write fiction, but you're not writing fiction is is like, embarrassing, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it you know. Is. So you are yeah. just you dead silent about it. It's the last thing that I would talk. Unbelievable! About, right? Oh my god, on a date? Oh yeah, I write fiction. What? You know, you would never say that, right? I mean, it's almost compartmentalized, like the way Ted Bundy was compartmentalized. Oh yeah, thanks a lot. Right? You know what I mean? <laughs> no, but I'm saying in terms of like, well, look, I'm this dude. I I'm telling you, I was 30 years old before I started writing. So yeah. like, I do understand. But I'm saying that that level of having to put the thing that brings you the most, I mean, in the same way that, you know, st- strangling a cheerleader was the thing that made Bundy the happiest. Yeah. Okay. The yeah, thing right. that was the most deeply satisfying to you. Yes. You had to, you had put so far aside that to even bring it out was painful for yeah. you. Yeah. Right? And I think, and I think that's why I said it on the night that, you know, she accepted my proposal because yes. it sort of felt like, you know, wait, before you, before we, before you call your, you know, your cousins and tell them we're getting married, you know, you should, you should know this piece of the puzzle. Right. And, and I, you know, so I said, you know, if I, if I don't, if I, if I'm not writing fiction again in a, in a way that I feel good about, I will end up, you know, a bitter and a drinker, you know, that's your risk with me, right. You as my future spouse. And, and she was like, Oh, okay. All right. You know, and, but the great thing she, she took it, she never forgot it. And, uh, and so like 10 years later when I was like, you know, or, or I guess at that point it was less than 10 years, but you know, a couple of years later, you know, uh, cause given where our engagement fell in this decade of yes. non-writing, uh, you know, I said, listen, I'm going to start writing a book. She was like, yep. Okay. I'm in it. Yep. Okay. You know, what do you need? You yes. know, yeah. You need a desk. You need a room. What do you need? You know, water, you know, so uh, because she was, you know, remember that conversation. So she's always been very that's supportive. Fan- oh, that's fantastic. That reminds me of that great moment in, in On Writing King's book when Tabby puts the uh, the Diet Pepsi on his on his desk, you know, when he starts writing again. It's yeah, right, beautiful. right. Just beautiful. I mean, that beautiful, that's sort of like thing that, that, that your partner was there for you in that way. What did that look like, though, man? When Because a lot of people say... Um, if I only had 20 minutes, I could write. So, but I don't, you know, they'll, they'll tell the story to themselves that, that they can't fit it into their lives. So can, can you talk about just a little bit in a granular way, what it looked like when you decided, okay, I'm ready to embark on this? Like, how did you organize your life? Was there a page count? Was there an amount of time a day? What did it, what did it look like? Uh, well, 
first I'll say that when I went back to writing, I, I, I spent seven years writing a novel that I didn't like. So, right. you know, and so I set that aside. So, uh, so what I'm about to tell you was kind of in the aftermath of that. That failed. So was that more of a sloppy process? Did you not have a routine? Right. For that? I, I was a little bit. Yes. I mean, there were sloppy aspects to it. Um, and, and so the key elements are that in that failed project. So let's say this is from 35 to 42 or something like that. Yes. And I'm, you know, I'm working full time. Eventually, we're, you know, uh, we end up uh, with kids. Um, right. But is uh, I didn't have an outline in that project. So, you know, that's an aspect of the sloppiness. Oh, but um, wait, you're working full time. So then when are you just, what are the yeah. hours that you're so, writing? So what ends up happening is that uh, when I start to write a new book, and, I, and one of the things I realized too, is, is that I, I didn't really have a very concrete plan of, of over what time period I was going to write that book. So it was kind of just going on and on and on. Right. And you were kind of, and it had multiple characters. It was told from the point of view of four characters. So the, the tone was changing all the time. So every time I sat down, I had to kind of get started again. It was, and then I would just sort of quit for two months and come back to it. Anyway, it was a mess. So, so when I, I, on the, on the tail end of that or the back of that, I decided, okay, I'm working. We have kids. I'm, I've got to do a book from a single point of view for the time being so that I kind of always know where I am. I'm going to outline it very carefully. I'm going to control the amount of time in the book. You know, maybe I only want to be a year, you know, let's say that's going to take place in the book. And I'm going to give myself a year to write the first draft. And this is rules of civility came out of this, this sort of sort of ends this group of uh, decisions. And, um, and for for those of you who read that book, uh, you know, that book begins on New Year's Eve, 1938, going into 38 and ends on New Year's Eve uh, of that the following, you know, a year later. And I literally designed that book in 2005, outlining it in great detail over the course of the year. And I started writing chapter one on January 1st, 2006. Did you know that it was going to have the structure where it actually started yes. um, 30 I, years later, yes. 30 years later? I knew everything. Back. I knew everything. Right. I knew every chapter. And in fact, what I was is I started that book on New Year's Day. I finished that book on New Year's Eve. I gave myself a year to write the first draft and I did achieve that. And But here's the crazy part. That book was designed with 26 chapters and still has 26 chapters because there are 52 weeks in a year. Right. And I wanted to write a chapter for a week, edit that chapter for a week, and then move on to the next chapter and just keep the forward momentum going. Um, and so then, so this, now, now you're getting to the very specifics of your question, which is that yes. with that layout, I'm starting January 1, I got a year, 26 chapters, write for a week, edit for a week. Now I can start, and I've got a very detailed outline. Now I can start to figure out what are the actual hours where this is going to take place. And early in uh, our parenting phase, my wife and I had a, a sort of an understanding that on Saturday or Sunday, sometimes both, one of us would take the kids, you know, we'd all have breakfast, and then one of us would take the kids from nine to one. And the other would take the kid from one to five. Right. And that was, and then we'd all get together for dinner. And that was hugely helpful because it meant that on, say, Saturday, sometimes both days, um, I knew there was a four-hour block coming for me, which I didn't have to feel guilty about. And my wife didn't resent um, because, you know, it was, yeah. she just had her four hours or whatever. And so I would plan all week what was going to happen during that four-hour period. Because, you know, I, you couldn't, I didn't have the luxury of sitting down at one o'clock and saying, okay, what am I going to do today? You know, what I instead, what I would do is I'd spend Monday through Friday generating ideas for chapter seven, 
little bits, images, some dialogue, themes, first sentence, last sentence, whatever, you know. You would do that in the morning before work or at night after work? I do it while I'm walking to work. I do it while at night while I'm sitting by having a little bit of scotch before bed. I do whatever, you know, just, but it's, that's, that's all fun stuff, you know, imagining what's while I'm on the treadmill, you know, so you, you, you generate little ideas, but all within the framework of filling in this, I know what's going to happen in this chapter. So, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't free association in, in the unlimited sense. Right. It was free association within the context of, she, you know, Katie's going to go to the track and she's going to run into Ann Grandin and, you know, right. or whatever. I knew what, what had to happen in the chapter. So, um, so, so at any rate, so it's almost a little bit like screenwriting that you're imagining the scene, you know, it's, it's really what yes. it, you know, becomes, yes. it comes down to that level. Um, so, uh, and, and then you would do the first draft of that chapter in that four hour period yeah, with all that stuff. Yeah. Maybe Saturday and Sunday. Right. And then, you know, printing it out on Sunday night. And then you can kind of start to tinker with it, you know, over the course of the week, a little bit here and there, but then spend the following weekend cleaning it up and putting a dot on it, whether it was done or not and moving on to the next chapter, you know? So, so yeah, so I had a real, yeah, it was. It, it, and, and what was your social life like during that time period? Did you, did you, it was fun. Did, you still went out at night. Like if your wife and you had plans with friends on a Wednesday night, you would do it. Yeah. Cause so, as, as I say, you know, we, we were, this was the, the slots of time. I just told you where I was doing my writing. So it wasn't like I was inaccessible from, you know, Monday through Friday night, six to midnight, you know, it was normal, right. you know, normal behavior. We, you know, we were putting kids to bed some nights. We go date night one night, you go out with friends another night, but yeah, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, between six and 11 o'clock I was, and and Fun. and would you t- would you talk about the fact that you were like so you know you were a young person who who had this uh, what I would consider success as a writer then you 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 wrapped it up for a while did you tell people hey I'm writing now like during those seven years you were writing the failed novel did you did people did your friends know you were writing did your coworkers know you were writing a very small group at that point right because you didn't want to overburden yourself. Yeah, and, and in fact when when Rules of Civility was sold, the vast majority of people knew me were like, "What? Wait, you did what you what? You sold a book?" you know. How satisfying was that? That was, great. That was so fun. satisfying. That was a fun week, yeah. Just to get back to that idea of when Shaban's book came out or when Emperor of the Air came out or any of those things, uh, did you uh, did you have any sense of loss of like I'm not in that you know when you would hear the stories of them all up at Yaddo did you ever think maybe I'll throw in an application to Yaddo or McDowell or it was just you made yourself you had blinders on and you were like that's not who I am right now I had to put the blinders on because it's just too infuriating right you know you, you, yes. you, you, can, you can drive yourself crazy with envy right so you just try not to pay too much attention to it and every yes. now and then I would drag myself you know to force myself to read one of those books that had been highly acclaimed, you know, and, but, but that's good. Cause you know, kind of get, it would keep me on track a little bit, which is to be like, yep, if I, I got to do this, I got to do this. Right. You would read one and then, and then maybe occasionally one would be very good and it would make you be like, oh fuck. But then most yes. of the time you'd pick it up and you'd be like, well, I can fucking do, I think I can do that. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I'm, I'm going to do this. Exactly. Yeah. See, I would get so angry. I would read something and I would just be <laughs> so mad at myself that I was like, uh, not, you know, not doing it. It would just, Oh, I had so much self uh, hatred. All I right, so Brian, so what we haven't talked about about this, and I mean, you're, I, I don't, you're, it's the longest, the most amount of time I spent talking about twenty years ago in a while. But so, but the thing we haven't talked about is that what what it the benefit it gave me 
right? Yes. So we've talked about what the loss was, was the five books yes. I'm behind, right? And, and so, but, but what the benefit it gave me was that when I sat down to write Rules of Civility, I wrote that for nobody but myself. You know, right. it, it was, it was, uh, I was not on competing with Chabon or Franz in, in, a, in a serious way, right? Because they were published people and I was not, you know, um, right. and I had a career. You know, I had a career. I was done well. I was paying for the roof over my family's head and for my kids' education. Yes. And my dad was happy. And, you know, I, so I, I didn't have to write it for the money. I didn't have to write it to impress my family. I didn't have to write it to uh, impress my peers. I didn't, you know, write it in, in response to the work by my generation. It was just me doing it. And that is a, uh, is a very valuable thing to have. You know, uh, and yes. and I, you know, and so maybe, um, you know, I'm a fan of, of I don't want to, this isn't a comparison, I'm a fan of DeLillo. And, right. uh, uh, but I, you know, recently re went back and read, or for the first time, read his first three novels, which he like wrote in three years. And, uh, and all three of them, the first third is amazing. And then like, I'm like, wait, wh what? You know, the second half is like, what? what? This doesn't make any sense, or I don't know why he's writing this. And, and you get the sense that, that he himself was kind of just going through these grand explorations and kind of and handing them off and was not uh, thinking about them very carefully in advance or editing them very carefully in the aftermath. And, you know, DeLillo fans are going to be furious at me for saying this. Um, but, but nonetheless, you know, that's these, you know, uh, that, that was my experience in reading his very early novels. Sure. And, yes. and so, you know, I skipped, I'm not saying that rules of civility is better than early DeLillo, but, but I'm just saying that in my own trajectory, um, yeah, is, you skip the messy. You skip the messy part. In yeah, a way, I probably is what you're saying, or or as often happens, you know, someone will write a first book that's really great, and then the next couple of books will be messier than that. And, yeah, and you you didn't have that that trajectory because yeah. you were ready to, I, to do this work. Yes, so so that's just a, you know that's the difference too. Oh, of course, no, and 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 as no as look as a reader, I wish I would have had. You know, you're five books behind. I mean, I, I would like to be able to go read the five books right now, right? Because <laughs> I've read these two, um, which, by the way, makes me wonder, why did you pull? So you wrote a series of short stories about Eve, who's a big character in Rules. And like Salinger, you put, though I have the Habsburg, I have all the early Salinger short stories. I've had them forever. Collect, I got them. But but why did you pull the short storybook off the shelves? And why can't any of us have those stories? Well, you can. Um the weird thing that happened there you, is, is they don't exist though. I mean, I'll no, make no, you send them to me. But. No, no, they exist. They exist. And I'll tell you how, where, where to get them if you want them. But it is, um, yeah. is what ended up happening there is, is when rules of civility was done for those of you who know that book, I, I had no interest in pursuing the lives of Katie and Tinker further. And who are the two most central characters. And, uh, I felt like everything that I was I was supposed to tell you about those two characters was in that book. And that if I went on writing about Katie or Tinker, it would undermine the artistic integrity right. of that book. So I had no interest in pursuing them further. But there is this secondary character, quite important secondary character named Eve. And she's quite a troublemaker and is Katie's closest friend. And midway through the novel, she kind of zips off and... Uh, ends up going out to Hollywood in, in 1938 and disappears in essence uh, in sort of into the Hollywood nether sphere. Um, and, and when the book was done, that's what really kind of obsessed me. It's like, oh man, what's she? Can I love the character? And she's a real troublemaker. And I was like, oh, she must be causing total havoc in Hollywood in 38, which is such a great moment in American 
time and place. And so I went and I wrote five short stories, which are interlinked, which describe the first six months of, of, of Eve in Hollywood. And, and that's what it's called. And it's, you, you know, it's, it's these people who encounter her kind of over the course of the six months. And eventually you hear from Eve herself. And now when I finished that, my publisher, who's great, Viking Penguin, is, you know, has been a great supporter of my work and continues to be um, and will publish my next few books. Um, they were like, ah, you know, it's 70 pages. It's kind of tough. It's tough to, to print this and make it work economically. And it's tough for the stores to sell. It's tough for us to bind in price. And so we ended up putting it on as an ebook in the initial stages. And what I ended up finding was that it, the ebook experience was was all wrong. It was priced wrong. It was attracting re- the wrong readers. It was uh, people had the wrong expectations when they opened it. So I said, you know what, pull it out. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want people to have this bad experience with the book. And so, which I still liked. So instead, where it's available now is, and it's the only place it's available, is it's Shakespeare and Company here in New York City. Um, I it's pr- on print on demand. You know, you it's this beautiful little special edition, which I sign every copy of, uh, and it's got a beautiful cover. And, you know, and what I, what I love about it there that you can only get it from Shakespeare and company, um, in New York city, either online or by calling them is that, um, for someone to get it, it's because they really want it. Oh yeah. That's great. I'm going to go. I, I, there's one 10 blocks from where I am right now. And I'm going to go to that Shakespeare. Yeah, So you, you, you can get it from, so I can walk in there and I can order it and they'll send it to me basically. Well, usually on the East side, it's on the shelf right now for sure. And they often have them on the West side uh, shop. I'm on the West side. I'm going to the West. So they usually, they usually send some over there, but they're printed on the East side, but they they, they print them 50 at a time. And I just went and signed 50 about three days ago. So I know they have great. Oh, great. Um, but yeah, so, 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 but like I say, I, that sort of was fine by me. I like having this oddity out there that real fans can hunt down and, um, and, but, but it, you know, uh, you won't stumble onto it and buy it online and wonder what the hell is this. But also it's really hard to find online. Like I went to Abe books and I went to Amazon and there aren't right now there aren't like over the last few weeks, there aren't any for resale. So yeah. good on, good on you. Yeah. Were you, this, this leads to this, the, the uh, when I started talking about, uh, I'm a proselytizer when I find something that I truly, truly love. Um, and uh, the last time I stumbled upon an author that I felt this way about was Murakami. I don't know if you're a fan or not, but for me, Murakami's like sort of the titan of our time. And, and uh, you know, then my friend David Benioff wrote City of Thieves, which I think is a magnificent book. If you haven't read it, you, I think, in particular would love it. Um, but... Uh, but your books are the next book. Like I read these books and and I really lost my mind over them. And uh, and I've given them to friends now and everybody who's read them has the same uh, reaction. And I know you know this because you've had it happen, but were you surprised by the intensity of the reaction to these books? In other words, did, I know you knew or hoped they would be good or received well, but did you know they were going to be, you know, large groups of people's favorite fucking book? Uh, no, I, you know, I, I certainly didn't know the, particularly in the case of Gentleman Moscow, you know, the, you know, that book ended up uh, spending a year on the, on the bestseller yeah. list in hardcover. And that was a very, that was a surprise to everybody. You know, any, no, everybody in the publishing house was. Oh, you know, even the publishers didn't realize oh, what you'd my, done? Yeah, you can't, no, no, everybody was surprised. And so, oh, that's awesome. I love that shit. Really? Yeah, that's but, great. But it's, um, uh, but you know, I, I knew, I knew, I, I was very proud of Rules of Civility. I thought it read very well. I thought it was going to capture the imagination of people. It did 
it did, you know, it was great and it was a bestseller and blah, 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 blah. When A Gentleman in Moscow was finished, I did feel when I wrote the last sentence in that book, it was a better book than Rules of Civility. I, I felt, right. you know, I felt like, yeah, this is, this is going to be, um, this, I'm, I'm, it's a book I'm, I'm proud of both books, but, but there's a big difference artistically speaking in uh, a book that spans a year in a life like rules of civility, a year in the yes. life of a, of a you know, 25 year old woman and a book that spends 30 years in a life, you know, in, in the case of gentleman Moscow, um, because you're, you know, yeah, there's setting in both books. There's dialogue in both books. There's thematic elements in both books and poetry in both books and all those kinds of, you know, all the elements of craft are in both books, but the human aspect of taking a life and playing it out over decades, yes. you know, uh, is, is a, a much richer, it's much more demanding, uh, obviously, from an artistic standpoint, but it's a much richer experience to both imagine and hopefully to read. And so when it was finished, and I felt it really did come together quite well, um, then I thought, yeah, you know, this, uh, this book has got uh, a depth that a depth of ex it's going to provide a depth of experience to the reader that uh, rules civility could never provide um, because of the narrowness of time. You know, uh, and I also think that um, I don't I didn't set out to do this, but I think Gentleman Moscow is a very humane book. You know, yes. and and I think that uh, and I, I don't you know what I don't even know what I mean by that, but but this and maybe it's related. There's something about because it's about friendship, it's about you know romance, but then parenthood and. You know, it's about all those very things, and it's in a time of trial. It's about it's about sacrifice and duty and loyalty yeah. and the differences of those things, and and about nobility and in both in in sort of all meetings of the word nobility. Yes, that's right. And so it, it's about stuff that it's about caste. You know, it's uh, both your books are about caste, and it's about all this. Um, yes, all of this stuff, right? You're allowing as much as someone brings to the the, the that book in particular they're going to come away rewarded. And I guess um, you you must have had faith that there was an audience that would receive it in, the, in that way. Well, you know, that, that, and kind of going back to that place where we started the conversation, I, I, one of the things I love about A Gentleman in Moscow, personally, and when I was kind of deciding which book to do next, and I have all these various ideas at various levels, various stages of development, you know, on my desk or in my files or in my mind, and I'd finished rules and Viking said, you know, what do you, we want to buy the next book sight unseen, but what, you know, what do you want to do? And, and, and I said, well, you know, I think I'm going to do, and, and I, what I love about John Moscow is that the, the elevator pitch is so bad, you know, I mean, it's, you know, I love that, you know, yeah. it's, I mean, you know, I'm like, I'm mean, Larry, I'm in a meeting and they've literally just signed the contract to buy the next book sight unseen. And they're like, so what's it going to be? I said, well, Hilarious. I'm thinking of do this idea. It's about, a, a, you know, a, an aristocrat, you know, who got sentenced to house arrest in Moscow in 1922. And, and, and the book spends 30 years in the hotel. And they're like, what? You know, no, you didn't really? tell them about the two little girls. You didn't tell them about the two children. No, no, no that's it. That's all they got. And so, you know, and they're like, okay, they were great. They're like, okay, go do it anymore. You know, we, we, we have confidence, but, but I'm sure that, you know, none of us, you know, you, you, you with a, with a pitch like that, it doesn't, there's no, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a bestseller. Right? There's nothing about it. And in fact, it sounds like it could end up being very esoteric and of limited interest. And so, but I love that about the, you know, the pitch. And so it's kind of like, uh, you know, it, it gives you, one of the things I've said, and I don't want to compare myself to, to Melville because Melville's one of my biggest heroes and, and Moby right. Dick is, is probably the greatest book in American English, greatest novel in American English. But, but I, there's a, 
there's a parallel between the two books that, that I think of in retrospect, which is that, you know, Moby Dick is a book in which Ishmael pretty early in the book gets on the boat and he doesn't get off again until the last page, you know, and it's a small group of people in a fixed space. And that's, you know, what that's Melville doesn't, that's not a confinement for Melville or for the readers of Moby Dick who love Moby Dick. It's the challenge that brings the whole thing to life, you know, and he fills it with electricity by, by knowing that because he can't get off the boat and you're stuck in Ahab's mission, he has to bring to the boat, the world, you know, through the commerce of whales and the science of whales and the mythology of whales and through the back, you know, the backgrounds of the various uh, seamen and, you know, all, and, and the, 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 the beauty of the stars and the you know, changes in the weather and all these things, uh, you know, the chance meeting with another ship at sea, all these things are brought into the boat, the confinement of the, of, uh, the Pequot so that that we can experience the world at large in the same way that, you know, Thoreau does the same thing in in the cabin yes. at Walden, right? We, we get yes. to experience the entire universe of human experience and thought somehow, you know, in uh, the cabin at Walden or in its immediate surroundings through the lens of Thoreau's meditations. And, and, and so, yeah, that's the kind of challenge that the bad elevator pitch of a gentleman in Moscow gives me. And, uh, and that, you know, that's, that's a very electrifying thing, you know, uh, f- uh, for me, creatively speaking, to have that, challenge. And that's the invitation to bring in the outside world. And, and, and I knew the minute I started writing that book or designing the book really is that it was not going to be minimalist in the tradition right. of Chekhov and Car- Raymond Carver or Hemingway. No, it's not a Carver. It's not a Carver-like no, book. No, no it's going to be maximalist. It was going to bring in everything, music, food, movies, literature, philosophy, history, politics, you know, you know, love and loss. It was all going to be kind of dragged through the door. Yes. And and it also seems to me that you're willing to uh, believe in the possibility of a kind of love as salvation and that as where many writers, especially postmodern writers, want to want to debunk that possibility, it seems to me or want to say it's not enough. It seems to me that you're willing in your work to say, well, this is possible and that that seems important to you in a way. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair observation, I, um, and maybe that's related to my description of hum, of the book being humane. Uh, yes, because I, I, I yes the human experience is 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 varied, right? And and uh, and it's 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 varied in the way we experience it as individuals. It's the way that different people experience it, you know. But certainly, uh, for most people at some point in the in the span of their lives there are are great moments of joy and passion and love and satisfaction and connection you know these are a part of the human experience and and there are those who who feel very separated from those things you know so the, uh, you know even for a period of time which is which can be terrifying or sad but but profoundly terrifying aside when it's over long periods of time when someone feels that isolation but for the for the most part even those of us who are, you know, uh, curmudgeons or who are cynical or who are ironic or skeptical, all these things, which I am in many ways, you know, uh, we are, as a part of our human experience, experiencing these grand things, which, you know, we celebrate. I don't know if you're familiar with the writer Mark Halperin. Yes, I do. Uh, I mean, Winter's Tale was a great 
influence on me as a young person. I feel that. No, I feel that in your work. Um, that a Soldier of the Great War, I think, is equal. I don't know if you've ever read it. I have not read that, book. but I, I have, I've heard that. It's magnificent. You will, you in, I'll say, Amor, I would be stunned if you didn't love that book. It's, but I feel Mark Halperin's influence on you, and 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 he's not, you know, Mark's out of favor, right? And and he's not an influence on many people because of the romantic sweep of his work. In a way, people want to push that aside. But I I feel like in in your work, if we just even look at rules of civility without spoiling anything, there are there's redemption through love throughout that book. Uh, there's brotherly love, redemption through brotherly love, the love Katie always has for Eve, no matter what Eve does. The, through, through, uh, you know, even the, um, I don't want to give it away, but, you know, the way Katie ends up, uh, the way she talks about an ideal marriage and, 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 and what exists, the, the last words of it, what she intones. It does seem that your worldview includes the possibility of redemption through love, and that you're not afraid to put it in your books. Yeah, I think that's true, and I, you know, but I, you know, I, I'm not. Um, for those who haven't read my books, it's not all you know, peaches and cream, and and no, and, God, and, no, it has to. So, that's why it has to be redemption through love. I'm no, saying, yeah, you have to be able to be saved through it. Yeah. You got to be in peril, right? Yeah, first. And, and I guess you know, for me, it's it's like you know the the. Uh, maybe uh, you know. Let's say, like in a in, in the realm of Tolstoy, as an example, uh, um, where it's all happening. You know, you have yeah. uh, characters who cannot make the connection and who suffer as a result. You have characters yes. who have overshot through arrogance and pay a price. You have you know, characters who've discovered tenderness through loss, and and it, and it enriches the way in which they experience love. You have the bitter sweetness of of love that you know can, that one cannot have or sustain, but yet has felt you, the, the ephemerality of experience and emotions uh, set us next to the sort of the, the longer term dynamics of like family or, or trust. And so, you know, in that Tolstoyan way, I, you know, I, I do want, I do want the books to kind of bring the breadth of human experience and, and yes. that, and that you're going to see, you're going to feel all of those different elements to some degree Um you know, played out by different characters. Um, so, so that it, you know, it's it's hopefully some sort of comprehensive and uh, in some ways self contradictory version of experience. And, and, yeah, you know, that makes and, sense. And, you know, and let's you know, let's say that you know what what is I think what is the novel right? <laughs> and what are you trying? What was one trying to achieve in in tackling a novel? And I think it. What I, I think of it as is that the, you know the novel is it's really like it's a machine for meaning and at its highest form when it's very well crafted uh, that it is, it is a story which is engaging you know, with characters, et cetera, with elements of all these various elements of craft we've talked about like setting and dialogue and, but also uh, tone of voice and perspective and metaphor and illusion and allegory. And they're all kind of in there and the, the, the poetry of language itself. But with, with this novel that there's a, while it's engaging and feels cohesive in a way that it hasn't doesn't go on longer than it should, it's not shorter than it should, um, but it has all these parts which which add to the engagement and the cohesiveness. But yet, where where they do, it doesn't mean one thing, right? It's these components which are interacting in harmony with each other or in contrast to each other, such that as we read or as we return to the book, we can go through different have different sentiments about it, different ideas about it. We can have draw different conclusions because of it. 
and we can point to the text and say, this is why I feel this way or why I think this is true in life or this is what I've learned because of this book. You know, we can point to these passages or images or the way they interreact, right? But because of this vast sort of a complex arrangement of all these components, someone else can read the book with a very different sentiment, a different set of ideas that they can argue just as effectively and that it can be people from different classes and different genders and different religions yes. can find pleasure in that book and find their own conclusions and that the same person can return to that book at the age of 20 and 40 and 60 and at each time be engaged but come away with new impressions right this is why absolutely yeah this is what the book is a book the, the, this is what the, the, the ambition the great the big project i like to think of it as this is what what you're hoping you one day might be able to achieve in the crafting of a novel and this is why Tolstoy is read hundreds of years later and why Shakespeare is read half a millennium later and still engaging audiences and prompting them to bait each other with, with great feeling and authority, you know, is, is because Tolstoy or these people, Wharton or you know, these, these Faulkner, they, they are masters at bringing together these components in an almost anarchic way. They're not all in perfect control. They don't, are not lined up to tell a very specific story. In the contrary of that, there's sort of combustion where they where they fit all together, but they can they can mean all these different things at once, right? And um, and so, so you know certainly that's what, what I, you know I aim for, and that's why I say I you know just in this little thing about uh, human outcomes, you want kind of all these various types of human outcomes to somehow be touched upon or suggested in the course of the book for the various characters. Sure. And and that, that some of those might be, I guess what I'm talking about is just uh, in a Salinger way, it's clear you love your main character. You, the humane thing is how much regard you have for your character. That's true. And how, you know, how you, how you love them, which trans, which then transfers to our, our engagement with them. I think uh, I appreciate you saying that. What what is happening in either film or TV for both of those projects? Gentleman uh, uh, Moscow, um, I is is uh, is slated or uh, to star is to be a miniseries um, for who for Apple, starring Kenneth Branagh, and uh, Apple has right now I think what is the final draft of the pilot, which they 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 ultimately hired me to write, and so. Awesome. Uh, Hopefully, um, if they're happy with this round, and we've been moving, you know, closer and closer to something which we all agree is the director, Apple. You know, I agree. Who's, is is Brana directing it or someone else? No, it's directed by the British uh, director named Tom Harper. Um, uh, great. Yeah. And so, uh, but hopefully, what we'll end up with is in the you know in the coming weeks, uh, a, a more clarity on on the when and how, and you know, uh, we go ahead. But I, my guess is that that we will move ahead and. And soon, Rules of Civility uh, was in the hands of Lionsgate for a long time, and um, and uh, it was initially developed as a feature. Uh, they eventually hired me to write a, the feature uh, script, which I did do. Um, but then we all kind of agreed maybe it deserved to be a television series instead. Um, but after you know a, a number of five or six years, I ended up taking the option back on that. And uh, we are in the process of finding kind of new partners to kind of uh, do, take a fresh look at that. But I, well, I really want to see that thing, man. You got to get it. Yeah, you got to get both of these things uh, launched. It's very exciting to me. Um, uh, although it's always uh, dicey when it's a book that you love so much is 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 made into something. I just want to see if there's anything else I need to ask you before 
uh, I let you go. Yeah. I, I, I will say, I, there's a question. How much do you think about theme? Because, you know, it's so easy for me to write down the, the thematics that were in there. And you talked about the novel as a, um, a, a meaning machine. Uh, that makes complete sense. But are you finding the, the th- in your outline, when you're outlining the characters and the story, are you coming to the table already with some thematic ideas you want to prosecute? Or are you finding that as you challenge the characters? I am definitely not coming to the project with targeted themes. Um, and, and I now... But for for kind of the reasons we were talking about a minute ago, I, I'm suspicious of how that would. I think that would undermine um, yep. the opportunity for the book to be as rich as it can be, if I'm coming in with a particular series of ideas about what it should mean to the reader. Um, now, having said that, you know the decision immediately to take a, an aristocrat and put him in a hotel in Russia and during the Soviet era, and you're in a building the entire time and of course, that's going to immediately, uh, it's going to, you're, you're, you're opening up certain you know themes which are unavoidable and that are going to be a part of the book, whether you want them to be or not, you know, whether it's confine, confinement or the, you know, the individual versus the state or, uh, you know, the power of the imagination and memory or, you know, the importance of friendship, you know, uh, rediscovery of self through purpose, you know, whatever, yes. all these things are kind of, if I gave you the, the, the uh, elevator pitch right away, you could say, okay, these are the things that are going to be thematically make sense, right? So just because that's the, the nature of the storytelling. And so that's going to start, but as I say, I try not to start asking myself, well, what does it mean? You know, which, so which you, is there a time know? where you ask that question in the process or you never ask that question? No, and it, but, but no, I try to avoid it right until the end. But what ended up happening to your point is that you keep discovering more and more, right? As you're writing, going through the writing process, you suddenly realize, oh, you know, this, there's this recurring sense about this and that this character's position is such that, you know, they, they, they have a very different point to make than my character A or character B. And, and so suddenly a new theme starts to surface yes. or a new topic that deserves consideration. And, and in fact, it deserves so much consideration that you want three different views on what that theme should be. There should be an argument about it as opposed right. to and a, So then you're doing it. Then you're consciously putting that on the table, yes. you're consciously doing it. You start that. to bring, you start to see it, you know, it earns its way into the conversation. And, and, and so then, you know, so that can be quite interesting. And I think that there's some places where, particularly towards the end of a book, there'll be a, a thematic idea that is percolated and percolated and percolated. And finally, I'm like, oh, you know, this, this is what I've been, this has been a major component of this book that I have not really even been aware of or, or articulated until suddenly I see it at the end. You know, and I think a good example of that in a gentleman in Moscow uh, is that um, small digression. But but uh, for those who haven't read the book or who, who have, as a reminder, you know, Casablanca starts to play a role in the story at the very end of the book as the count and, and a guy that who's a friend of his watched the movie as a way of sort amazing. of learning about the West and. And I went back and I knew kind of in the last pages of the book, they were going to rewatch Casablanca together, the count and this figure, Osip. And, and I, I wanted them to, I wanted to kind of talk about the opening scenes of the movie. And so I was rewatching it, the opening scene for the millionth time. And I'm describing in the story that, that that's happening. And as I'm watching it, as I'm 
preparing to rewrite this sort of this this one of these final chapters in the book, I noticed for the first time, and I, I don't know, maybe I've seen Castle like a thirty times in my life. I mean, it's it's, it's definitely that. Me know. too, by the way. Yes, yeah. me too. Is I suddenly realized that you know, for those who remember the, the movie, uh, very at the beginning, yeah, Ugarte he steals the letters of transit, and the, the, the Nazis are hot on his trail, and he, he comes to Rick's cafe and says, "We, you know, gets him to hide the letters of transit so they're not on his person," but then the the the, the, the French police and the Nazis come and the Chapa come and they arrest him in the casino, Peter Lorre. Peter Lorre makes a break for it. There's gunfire. Peter Lorre ends up killed and, and the letter of transit end up hidden in, in the bar. Um, but I, I, I'm watching this scene play out because he's, he's going to describe it in the course of the novel and in this final, one of these, come, these come, uh, final chapters. And as I'm watching it, Gogarty bolts, Peter Lorre bolts, this gunfire, doors are slammed, and, you know, there's been chaos, everybody's, there's been a guard, I mean, a police officer been shot, de dead, and, you know, the music stopped, people are uh, aghast, and they're on their feet, and Humphrey Bargar is coming back through, and he says, it's okay, everybody, you know, it's all over, you know, everything's fine, enjoy yourselves, signal Sam to start playing music, and as he's walking past a table, he passes a martini glass, which has been tipped over in the commotion, and he really just picks it up and sets it, sets it upright as he passes the table where this couple is sitting. And I was looking, I was like, you know what? That's the whole thing. That's what this whole crazy book is about. You know, right. it's about it's about the sort of this crazy belief in a time of turmoil in an oasis, the the Rick's Cafe, in the middle of a you know yes. a, a, a time of great turmoil like the Metropole is in the in, in the Soviet era in, in both real life and in the book, and that you know here you have this individual who's sort of grounded in this this different kind of ethos than the times, Rick or the Count, and you have to have this faith that in the midst of this turmoil, setting the empty martini glass upright as you walk by the table that somehow that matters. You know, like that, that, yes. so that little gesture is, is somehow going to make the world a slightly better place. And I was like, you know what, that's the whole, that's what the cow is, you know? And so you have, as I say, you have, that was a buried sort of thing, which is clawing its way through the book in greater and greater importance. But, but there's no, but the bell hasn't rung yet for me or the reader, I think. Then I got to ask, did you then go back? through the book and add, for instance, the counts talking to the waiter about the way the waiter, like, did you that, right? Because throughout the book, you're right. That is hit throughout the book. Like the difference between a good waiter and a bad waiter, the difference with like you, you really do hit that note about yes. uh, duty, about what it means to have sort of a sense of duty to an ideal. Yeah. So once you discovered that through the Casablanca thing, did you then go back and find those moments or were they there to begin with? I, mean, I think part of the reason you're having that or I'm having that revelation at that moment is because it's all there. Now, now, yes, you're going to go back and re revise the book, you know, one, two times word for word after that. So there is that opportunity with the now that knowledge, you circle back to the beginning and start the revision process. Yes, where, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. You're going to sharpen those elements now. Not, you know, try, again, I try not to be too self-conscious about it because I think that's the way you screw it up. But you, you try to kind of bury the awareness of that and then revisit. Well, right. You don't have the, you don't have the count say to the bad waiter. Yeah. Um, it is in, you know, it is in these moments that you prove your yeah. work. You know, yeah, you exactly. just sort of say like, you know, you have the count sort of saying, I wish he'd do a better job here. And, but um, and by the way, sometimes, with that couple. It is, sometimes it is, and I know you know this, Brian, but sometimes the now the knowledge of what that's going to be at the end it, what it gives me is the freedom to actually go back and make less of those moments yeah. earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yes. 
Yeah, it allows you to just let it. Th- but but I am thinking of you know the moment when that 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 couple is there in the restaurant and they're being not taken care of, right? And yes, he sees right. it, and and that certainly ties into this idea of yes, you don't have to be nice to the you know you don't have to ensure that those people have this wonderful night, but man, you really should ensure that they do. Yes, and, right. And we're all better for it, and not only because it's this little gesture, because in fact, all we have are those gestures to save the world. Yeah, exactly. and that is in the and that is that, in in, yeah. in the book. And in a way, and this is a good place to end. In a way, that's the I, when I started by saying you 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 buoyed me in the during this pandemic, man. You know, a novelist, especially in this era, and my wife's written. My wife's a published novelist. She's published three books, uh, but the idea of and and she's a great novelist. Uh, she's a minimalist, but uh, but she's she's a minimalist. So you and she do very different things, but she's a great novelist. But the idea of the sort of hopelessness of thinking you're going to write a novel that that in this world is going to be a bomb for anything is uh it is the same kind of craziness as setting the martini glass yeah right right Right? and uh and that's why i love novelists and and that's why i have (laughs) such regard for you because you did you know my martini glass was going all over the place and for little periods of time there during this pandemic dude you said it you said it right. And yes, I did just call you dude, even though I don't know you. <laughs> that's okay. But that's what happened. Amor Tolls. Brian, tell, thank uh, you. Thank you so much. You can find Amor on Twitter under his name. He doesn't post a lot, but he is there. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. Uh, and we will see you next time. <laughs>